2: Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, all at long last to the Korean War, the first introductory episode to be precise. You are all so, so very welcome and I am so, so happy to have you. It's been a very, very long journey to get here and, well, we're here, at last, incredibly enough. We we are here, I really can't believe it. When you start long projects like these you kind of forget the fact that you will actually have to read out the stuff you wrote and you will actually have to present all your ideas to the public. So I've been very insular the last few months pumping out the scripts for this and I've been doing a whole load of research into this conflict. I really cannot wait to see what you guys make of this series and I really can't wait to see what it helps when Diplomacy Fails accomplish. 2018 is going to be a massive year for this podcast I, as usual, have massive plans, and hopefully they will all work out very nicely. If they do, you can be sure that When Diplomacy Fells will be covering some pretty fantastic gems. But, speaking of gems, we are starting right here with an era that When Diplomacy Fells has never been to before. Not just the Korean War, but the Cold War era, the early 1950s, post-World War II. We haven't even looked at World War II before and now we're looking at the era after it, where the United States and the Soviet Union faced down one another for two generations, as the world seemed to shake in the face of nuclear Armageddon. Of course, no one got nuked, and even though playing Fallout 4 is very fun, I am very thankful that no one did get nuked, and that everyone moved on. Strangely enough, though, you might be wondering... Well, if everyone's moved on, why are people talking about nuclear war so much all of a sudden? And what exactly is going on in North Korea? Zach, could you explain to me how on earth it is that in the 21st century a regime like North Korea is able to exist? Well, yes, I can. This series right here will really help set the background of North Korea. Where on earth did a state like North Korea come from? And how on earth did the Kim Dynasty starting back with Kim Il-sung, two generations before, happened to rule over a state in the manner that it now does. The Korean War was a tragedy, above all, but it was also full of incredibly fascinating diplomatic details, the vast majority of which have been forgotten today. Everything to do with the United Nations, the United States, the British, the British Commonwealth, the role that the Indians played... There's so much going on, and that's before we even talk about General MacArthur and his on-again, off-again relationship with the Truman administration. I don't want to give too much away, so I'm going to just jump into this episode here. There is a second introductory episode that is released in line with this one, wherein we basically look at how these episodes are going to be structured and the kind of sources that we plan on making the most use out of. You should know, and I'll be reminding you guys of this later on, the full bibliography for this entire series content is available for free to download or just read or what have you at the website. The link, as always, will be provided in the show notes. Other than that, guys, I just wanted to say a huge thanks for joining me for the Korean War. And if you've never listened to When Diplomacy Fails podcast before and you're just stopping by because you thought hey, no one else has really done the Korean War and the kind of detail you're planning on doing, Zach, then you're very welcome to. And hopefully, you'll even stick with us after the dust settles and we move on from the Korean War to something else. But before we get carried away, before we give away too much, let's just jump into it. You're all so welcome, I'm so happy to have you, and I hope you enjoy what we've got ready for you here. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon. The advent of a new regime in North Korea, following the death of Kim Il-sung's son in 2011, North Korea has become steadily more prominent in world news, generally for the wrong reasons. By late 2017, North Korea was boasting that it had the power to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles against any target in the United States. Evidently, the old policy towards the Hermit Kingdom was no longer having its effect. Even the Chinese, Pyongyang's sole ally and regarded as the voice of reason for the regime, has been left apparently scratching its head. North Korea seemed to have gone into business for itself, and as it threatened the world with nuclear annihilation, as one watched the insane drama play out with higher stakes than ever before, as one perhaps looked past the overweight, smiling face of the latest holy incarnation of the Kim dynasty, they are often struck by that pressing question, why? Why, in the 21st century, does a regime like that found in North Korea exist? Kim Jong-un's world is a kaleidoscope of contradictions, loony-bin levels of leader worship, and bizarre scenes which occasionally leak into the mainstream media channels. In the fiercely rehearsed news bulletins, a newsreader barks the words at the screen, generally peppered with lines referring to the wisdom, generosity, benevolence and pedigree of the great, dear leader. Perhaps North Korea's place as a prominent fixture in the news stems from its rampant sense of insecurity. Kim Jong-un is the first member of the Kim dynasty to be born after the events of the Korean War. He is the first leader of North Korea to lack the kind of mystical credentials owned by his grandfather and, to a lesser extent, his father, Under such circumstances, when the image of the dynasty is at stake, what better way to demonstrate the strength of one's regime than to poke a den full of bears with an atomic stick? Any reaction to its bombastic actions can be presented in any fashion that North Korea's far-reaching media and propaganda departments desire. This is the way it had always been in North Korea, and unless something radical changes, it is the way it will always be. Technically, of course... North Korea has not always been this way. Every time a news bulletin regarding North Korea emerges onto our screens, every time we hear someone talk about that whack job in Pyongyang, every time a small part of you wonders if, maybe, perhaps, the world will fall into a nuclear abyss today, you are feeling not just the desperate displays of a dictatorial regime, you are also feeling the aftershocks of the Korean War. To a great many people, the Korean War means absolutely nothing. The dwindling number of veterans from its bloody and terrible campaigns form a valuable, if largely silent, testament to its place in history. But it is sadly unlikely that even if these veterans were willing to talk, we would be willing to listen. History, not least the history of some obscure conflict in some armpit in Asia, is not relevant to me, so why bother? The Korean War suffers from a strange kind of marginalisation in the historiography of the 20th century. It is the Passed Over War, the war which most students skim past on their journey from the Second World War to Vietnam. It is accepted as a convenient starting line for the Cold War, that year of 1950, providing an immensely satisfying round number for the OCD senses of many historians. The Korean War began, and it ended, and at its end, The Korean people and peninsula were divided into two different regimes, two different worldviews, two different armed camps. While the world in which the Korean War was housed, that of the Cold War has since expired, the consequences of that conflict have clearly stood the test of time. To a great deal of people, simply knowing that a war caused the current state of affairs to exist in Korea has proved to be enough, but it's not enough for me. More than ever, the lives of those people that live in North Korea today, or South Korea, and the lives of you and I which have been affected by the actions of this loner of a state, all of this can be traced back to the events of the Korean War, where the division of the peninsula was made permanent, so it seems. In my mind, this qualifies the Korean War for a special status. Far from the epithet as the forgotten war, it should be the studied, the understood, the appreciated war. What other conflict has produced such a public legacy since its conclusion several generations before? What other conflict has endured a military-style ceasefire, which we are told was never fully settled, and leaves both sides of the peninsula to this day still technically at war? The Korean War is a bizarre conflict precisely because it has no equal in history. For three full years, the forces of the Republic of Korea and the United Nations, led by the United States, battled against the forces of North Korea and then the People's Republic of China, with some support provided by the Soviet Union. This was significant enough, since it represents a great showdown of the two opposing ideological camps. Yet its underlying terms also add to its distinctiveness. It was the first and last conflict fought through a UN resolution, passed unanimously in the United Nations Security Council. Through the passing of two UN Security Council resolutions on the 25th and 27th of June 1950, Korea became the first place in the world where collective security, that ultimately doomed brainchild of the League of Nations, was properly brought to bear. Never again would so many nations pour their political and military support behind a venture. Never again would the forces of the United Nations seemed so united behind a common cause. As far as the location goes, the fact that the Korean War necessarily takes place in Korea may count against it for the casual historian. A casual history enthusiast will be most interested in the history of the place that they are from, their wider area next, and then further on from that. Such a statistic is not the law, of course, otherwise I'd never talk to you about anything other than Irish history, but you get the point. The Korean War is forgotten precisely because it is Korean. For those born outside of such a fascinating, culturally and historically rich part of the world, Korea holds few attractions no matter who fights on its lands. Yet, while I've never been a Korean War enthusiast by any stretch, I've always found the Korean War somehow more appealing than its successor, if you like, in Vietnam. Perhaps it was because of those few times I watched MASH with my dad when I should have been in bed. Perhaps this is my first World War bug rearing its head all over again. If we take the Korean War to be World War One and Vietnam to be World War II purely on the availability of source material and popular resources alone, then due to my interest in the less popular First World War, I will side with the Korean War. While categorising certain conflicts as underdogs in the historiography of the 20th century might be a strange exercise, and it is, something which further brought me into the Korean War was just how much foreign involvement took place. In Korea, unlike Vietnam, as many as 16 nations sent some kind of armed unit, whether it was New Zealand's artillery battalion or the full-blown military monopoly of the United States or the ambulance team provided by India, or the elite colonial unit provided by the French. Also in Korea, the People's Republic of China confronted the United States on the battlefield. For the first and last time in history, we all hope, two of the most powerful nations on earth fought each other, and yet the situation never escalated into a full-blown war. In addition, the Soviet Union never took advantage of the situation, and the Truman administration, while heavily involved, never upped the ante. They never bombed Chinese lands particularly heavily, and they never seriously considered making use of the atomic bomb, as we'll discover. As you can see from these musings, it's precisely because I had so many questions about the Korean War that I found it so inherently appealing as a subject to study. This neglected, contradictory conflict on the periphery of 20th century historical literature was a perfect representative of, well, the Korean Peninsula, as a strategic interest for the United States in the post-war world. Korea was distinctively unappealing to the American public and politician alike. A Japanese territory since 1910, all that most Americans knew of Korea was what its soldiers had said, that Koreans made the worst prison guards in the terrible POW camps run by the Japanese. There was certainly a sense of sympathy for Korean independence, though, and committees inevitably sprang up in support of its cause throughout the United States. But no wave of popular enthusiasm to somehow save Korea was there as there was for China during its many civil wars. Indeed, as difficult as it was to find Americans that cared for the plight of China in the face of the Japanese assault in the 1930s, it was many times harder still to find one who cared for Koreans. The Japanese, for that matter, were relevant only in so far as they had made war against American interests. Otherwise, the Japanese, the Chinese, Koreans, Indo-Chinese, etc. could all be lumped into the group of people that came from over there. Yet despite this, despite the fact that Koreans were an alien people, in an alien land, with an alien culture, in a region with bare strategic interests for the United States, still Washington felt it necessary first to establish a democratic regime, and that's in air quotes, in the south of the peninsula, and then to reinforce and defend its security with increasing cost over the coming years. The contradiction is immediately apparent. For a region so distant, so alien, and so unimportant to American strategic interests, the Truman administration and successive American governments since has certainly invested much in keeping the Republic of Korea afloat. The rationale traditionally given, and the one you're likely barking at me right now, is that the Korean War happened, and the United States became involved, under UN auspices, for the sake of containment. That may well be the case, but what if I told you that instead of containment causing the United States' intervention in the Korean War, it was the Korean War that developed, solidified, and helped pay for the new concept called containment, which the Truman administration was only beginning to get to grips with by the time the North invaded. In other words, what if I told you that there is so, so much more to the Korean War than the conventional explanations normally given? That the United States intervened in Korea to prevent a domino effect of communism's overwhelming spread across Asia and beyond. In addition to that image of the United States surging forward to defend its South Korean ally, we have other considerations that all played critical roles in the prelude, outbreak and course of the Korean War. There is the urge to rearm, the Anglo-American relationship, the role of the United Nations, the role of the People's Republic of China, the Soviet Union, of the North and South Korean rulers, and even of the pressure caused by such public relations campaigns as the Red Scare, McCarthyism, all to consider. All these questions are ones we will aim to wrap our head around for the duration of this epic series, And all the while, throughout it, diplomacy above all will remain our guiding baseline. By embracing the diplomatic rather than the military or the strategic, our narrative will flow far better than if we were to engage in an analysis of every battalion or if we were to try and explain the technological specifications which powered one particular nation's air force. I do recognise that a significant amount of you listening right now would love me to engage in an examination of the more technological concerns – why not do what I did for Louis Fourteenth? you may be wondering – and release a multi-part series investigating the arms and armies of the Korean War. To you guys, first of all, I would say thank you for believing I'm capable of such a Herculean task as tracing the military and technological capabilities of those actors in the Korean War. And second of all, sorry, but... Because of the sheer wealth of things going on in the story, as we'll discover, we simply do not have time or space to cover all these issues in the detail that they require or deserve. For these reasons, I will not mention military technology, the detailed movement of individual battalions, or the technological specifics of given vehicles or aeroplanes, etc., unless it is directly relevant to our narrative. When Diplomacy Fails has never been about covering these aspects of the story, and I have to be strict here, unfortunately, or else we will very easily double our episode count and venture down far too many rabbit holes in the process. If you will allow me to exclude this aspect of the story though, and if you'll see my series on the Korean War for what it is rather than what you would like it to be, in other words a very, very, very detailed account of the diplomatic machinations that led to, powered and ended the Korean War, then I promise you'll enjoy our series that much more. If you are interested, I genuinely hope you guys will look at the bibliography and read up for yourself if you're interested in any further reading. It is there that every published work I made use of in my research has been painstakingly recorded for you guys to follow up, if you so desire. In return for allowing me to exclude the elements of the story that I find boring or don't have time for, to leave them in more qualified hands, I promise to deliver to you guys the most detailed, comprehensive account of the Korean War's political and diplomatic developments ever recorded in podcast format. The trade-off, I hope you will agree, is a worthwhile one. Since I'm not bogged down in details I find personally tedious, I can better belt out the aspects of the story I find more interesting. How was the atomic bomb used in American diplomacy? Why couldn't the Anglo-American Axis agree on its Chinese policy? Did General MacArthur want to start World War III and so many other interesting angles spring to mind, many of which we will, of course, examine. This approach will not be a surprise to those of you that have followed When Diplomacy Fails since its beginning, but this statement is largely for those new to When Diplomacy Fails, who stopped by purely because they heard I was covering the Korean War. As my back catalogue and the very name of this podcast suggests, though, it is the diplomacy that interests me. What I want to know about Korea is... How and why did the diplomacy fail there, and what did those failures look like? Answering these questions has taken me on one of the most incredible journeys through some of the most fascinating published works, and it has caused me to really challenge what I thought I knew about the conventional wisdom of the historiography like never before. I say all this with not a small amount of trepidation and caution, but also with a sense of optimism as well, that you guys will put your faith in me as you have for other revisionist series like the July Crisis Project or 1916. Just as I did in those projects in Korea, I'm trying to give you a fresh interpretation of events. And just as I did in those projects, I was immensely fortunate to stand on the shoulders of some giants. Scholars of the Korean War with concise, effortlessly readable and instantly enjoyable accounts of the conflict. It is because of them that researching this series has been a pleasure rather than a chore, and for those of you that are further interested, I would recommend checking out the Sources and Structure introductory episode that I will release along with this one as a kind of introduction starter pack. These two introductory episodes, while I know they're somewhat unwieldy in size, are necessarily large for the scope and insight that they bring to this series. In addition, it means that for those listeners that don't care for such things, they can go right ahead and listen to the series without having to really worry all that much. I should also add that, for those of you that are interested in reading along, maybe as we speak along, all the scripts for the episodes in this series have been meticulously footnoted and fact-checked, so the claims made within them are watertight, and, if you are interested, you can also follow where I got the information. Access to the script is a perk for all patrons at the $2 level. For everyone else, remember to track that bibliography down absolutely free of charge from the website, which, as I said, I will link to in the description. Since much of the force and weight of my theories focus on the actions of President Harry S. Truman and his administration, you can expect a strong emphasis on the American role in the conflict. I've tried to balance this emphasis as best as I can, and have a listen to the structure episode to find out more on how I do that, but since it was the United States that shouldered the burden of the fighting among the Western Allies, and since the Western Allies represent a critically important cog in our story, it would be wrong, I feel, if we allowed our focus to give equal weight to all of the actors involved in the UN intervention in the Korean War. Having said that, while America will be our lens it will be by no means our sole focus. The context of the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, as well as the United Kingdom for the terms of their cooperation with the United States, will all have to be examined, as will the other actors who played pivotal, albeit underrated, roles in the Korean War. The Indian role in the inception of the Armistice Terms, for example, or the highly regarded Turkish regiment, and why it was sent in the first place, are political side notes that we will definitely grapple with, and I'm really looking forward to bringing you those episodes on forgotten aspects of this Forgotten War. My aim is to give you as balanced and detailed an analysis of the outbreak of the Korean War and the diplomatic negotiations which characterised it as I can. Because the topic at hand is so huge, it is only natural that I take some kind of perspective as our baseline, but I promise that this perspective won't come at the expense of our wider narrative. So then we come to that key question. What is it, Zach, that has you so concerned about your coverage of the Korean War? What is so scandalous, so different about your theories, that you feel it necessary to issue something of a disclaimer before you even begin? Well, allow me to explain what we're in for here. Well, actually, before we do that, before I delve into what is different about my approach, I feel it's only right to present you guys with the conventional narrative of the Korean War in brief. So here we go. First... In late June 1950, the North Korean regime, led by Kim Il-sung, managed to either persuade Joseph Stalin or be persuaded himself to launch the invasion of South Korea. Second, the United States, horrified at the invasion, but doing precisely nothing in the run-up to the war to actually stop it, intervened in enough force to hold the North Korean People's Army back. Third, thanks to the absence of the Soviet Union from the United Nations Security Council, Owing to Moscow's boycott of that institution, the Western Allies effectively control the UN's decision-making body at this critical juncture, and after something of an appeal, the UN becomes more heavily involved. Fourth, by early September a counter-attack is launched at Incheon, whereupon the Allies throw back the North Koreans and surge forward. Fifth, the advance continues, in spite of the warnings that the Chinese will intervene if they go any further, General MacArthur says to heck with it and pushes towards the Yalu River. Sixth in late November 1950, the Chinese, to secure their border with Korea and prevent the establishment of a Western satellite on their doorstep, feel they have no choice other than to intervene. From the point of Chinese intervention, guys, the conflict in Korea becomes, in the words of General Douglas MacArthur, an entirely new war. The Chinese surged forward in mass human waves, forcing the Allies all the way back and recapturing Seoul in January 1951. From this high point, amidst feverish diplomatic activity, the Communist impetus stalled. The Communists had run ahead of their supply lines. They were hammered by Allied air power, and under these circumstances, their offensives began to contract. The emergency was over, but the back-and-forth warfare which would so characterise the Korean War was only beginning. Over the spring of 1951, several offensives under General Matthew Ridgway made great gains, and after parrying some communist counter-attacks, the Allies seemed poised to make another play for the Yalu. This time, though, the end goal was different. The Allies plainly were not intending to surge north once more. The dynamic of the conflict had evidently changed. For the next two years, peace talks, stalemate at the negotiating table and on the battlefield, The sensitive issue of returning prisoners of war, feverish diplomacy within the United Nations, and countless other concerns characterised the conflict. From June 1951, the Korean War became the conflict that everyone wanted to see brought to an end, but it would take a brand new American administration and the death of Joseph Stalin to bring this about in late July 1953. For all those months, as men wasted their time on the front lines, as money was frittered away on a stationary campaign of attrition, The two sides stared at each other across no man's land, utterly dependent upon the progress made by the politicians and statesmen, be they in the United Nations General Assembly, in its Security Council, or in the relevant capitals, Washington, Beijing, Moscow, London, Paris, etc. Now that we've presented you guys with the war's outbreak course and conclusion, we can address what it is about this series that may or may not be controversial. This is not, nor was it ever going to be, a conservative examination of the Korean War. In other words, this was never going to be a series that did not challenge or present the listener with anything particularly new. I do like to pride myself, or ruin myself, by taking on new challenges, by embracing the new interpretations of conflicts, so that you guys can be presented with as many points of view as possible, while I make my own views very clear where I stand and why. Thankfully, the controversial nature of my series isn't down to some crackpot theory. I think we should get it out of the way once and for all, because I have heard speculation about this, that I do not for one second believe that the Korean War was somehow started by the South, although I have come across people during the course of my research that do believe that the innocent North merely responded to what the aggressive South had done. My conclusions instead can be broken down into three broad strokes. First, that Joseph Stalin, more than any other figure, was responsible for the Korean War, and that contrary to some interpretations, it was Moscow, rather than Pyongyang, that made the Korean War possible. The North Korean tale did not, in my view, wag the Soviet dog, and I will do my best to vindicate this conclusion through the preceding 48 episodes. Second, the reason why Stalin wanted to see the Korean War launched in the first place had to do with his post-World War II ambitions as the Cold War set in. Stalin instigated a war on the Korean Peninsula and then manipulated its course for one reason above all, to force the People's Republic of China into conflict with the West. For reasons of strategy, influence and power above all, Stalin believed that the interests of his leadership and the Soviet Union generally could be served by bringing the fledgling Chinese communists and the United States, the United Kingdom and others together into a conflict, albeit a conflict that was limited in nature. Again, I will do my best to explain, through the series, why Stalin believed this would be so beneficial. If you're still with us, then I'll hit you with my third conclusion, which is the most controversial, perhaps, of all others in this series. But here it is. The Korean War, and the subsequent limited war against the Chinese, was a conflict that the Truman administration wanted, needed, to happen because this would create the conditions necessary for the massive increases in the United States defense budget that would make the policy of containment actually possible. It is this point above all, a point which I did not reach myself, but which I adapted from Richard C. Thornton's groundbreaking new interpretation of the Korean War called Odd Man Out, That caused me the most concern. And it caused me concern because I know how it sounds. Here comes a guy with a crackpot theory to explain the odd or seemingly unexplainable. Here comes a guy with a leftist, or a rightist, or a centrist bias to tell us how the war went, actually, as I go and fetch my tinfoil hat. Believe me, I have thought about how this interpretation of events would be received by you guys and by new listeners. I don't want to be known as the alternative weirdo who insists on seeing things in a certain way for the sake of it, in spite of the evidence. Yet, as someone who takes their job very seriously, and When Diplomacy Fails is my part-time job now, and as someone who always works at this podcast with the lessons of their degrees in mind, I cannot help but conclude that in this case, the answer is more straightforward but much more controversial than you may have expected. I have read, researched and practically lived the Korean War for the last four months. And try as I might, I just could not get this conclusion out of my head that the Korean War developed as it did, not out of accident or breathtaking incompetence, but because those at the top had a vested interest in seeing it develop as it did. Now, don't mistake me here. I'm not saying that the United States launched the Korean War or that Washington was in cahoots with Moscow to get the conflict that they wanted. What I am saying is that, too many coincidences, too many convenient errors simply do not add up. Especially when we look at the figures and learn that the US defense budget increased so massively from $15.5 billion in the months before the war to $70 billion by the end of 1951. One of my core theses for this series is that this whopper increase was not a byproduct of the Korean War, instead, it was the goal of the Truman administration and the circumstances of the conflict in Korea helped to achieve this goal. It was because of Korea, I will argue, that containment on the scale it was later known for became possible. It was because of Korea that after 1953, the United States became and remains to this day the global leader in defence spending and capabilities. It was because of Korea that Washington would refrain from following the old post-war model that it had done in the past. In the future... Demobilization would not enter into the lexicon of American statesmen, as it had done following the First or Second World Wars. This was because, as the Korean War established, the United States was fighting a war. It wasn't against the forces of 19th century imperialism, or aggression, or against the sinister threat of Nazism, but against the sometimes peaceful, sometimes violent force of Communism, represented and personified by the Soviet Union. The Cold War began in the form that we recognise it, with the massive American military spending and strategic cooperation with its Western allies, thanks to the lessons and experiences of the Korean War. So that's one significant pillar of my Korean War series, and one which I believe will be the most controversial, as we unwrap the different pieces of evidence which I believe point to Washington facilitating the outbreak of the Korean War, even while they did not and would not have outright declared it, without the Soviet actions. We'll see the United States deliberately underfund the South Korean regime of Syngman Rhee, and we'll see key officials in the Truman administration, such as the Secretary of State Dean Acheson, regard with blithe indifference the claims from Seoul that the regime was in trouble. We'll see the American ambassador to South Korea travel to Washington on the eve of the Korean War to plead for aid, only for his pleas to fall on suspiciously deaf ears, Where most historians claim that a failure in intelligence is to blame for these actions, I will present the argument that Washington deliberately left South Korea vulnerable to lure a communist assault upon it so that the Truman administration would be justified in then requesting the defence budget increases which Truman, Acheson and several other high-level figures in America understood would be necessary if containment was to properly be supported. At the root of this policy line in Washington was a report drawn up by the National Security Council over spring 1950. Within this report, it was noted that the Soviet Union was eager for expansion, and that only American arms or coercive diplomacy could stop her. This report was called NSC-68, and it's a report which forms an important part of our hypothesis on the Korean War. NSC-68 was not pleasing to everyone, though. George Kennan, the expert on Soviet affairs for one, did not agree with its conclusions that the Soviets were expansionist and aggressive. Kennan believed that Moscow was weak rather than strong, and that the faux pas between 1945-50 to 50 had only demonstrated this. Yet for all Kennan's opposition, the Truman administration thought of the bigger picture. They imagined the future in this intensifying Cold War, and they believed that NSC-68 provided the best, most realistic policy for halting and controlling the Soviet Union and its aggressive sponsoring of communism. Thus, NSC 68 became official policy, a fact tacitly noted by most historians, even while they fail to grasp its underlying implications. What makes our story so interesting is the role that the Chinese played in the containment policy. Before January 1950, official American policy was to appease and repair the damage done to Sino-American relations in the hopes that the People's Republic of China and the USSR could be kept apart in world affairs. By late January, though, with Mao Zedong and Moscow for some time, it was learned that a Sino-Soviet alliance was in its final stages. This news that the two largest and most powerful communist states had just become a collective bloc, affected a near-immediate change in American foreign policy. Plan A had not worked, so Plan B, to challenge and contain this threat more actively, NSC 68, was adopted. And boy, was it ever adopted. On the 31st of January 1950, it seems almost certain that Washington intercepted and decoded a very important cable between Stalin and Kim Il-sung, the leader of North Korea. Within this cable was the message that Kim had been waiting for since his tenure as leader of North Korea began. A message to the effect that Stalin would support North Korea in its invasion of the South, an invasion which Kim had been pressing Stalin to support for years. If this cable was intercepted, and I believe that it was, then the subsequent behaviour of the Truman administration makes all the more sense. From that day on the 31st of January 1950, Not only did Truman approve the development of the hydrogen bomb after holding back for some time in months past, but he also requested that the State Department and the National Security Council look into a top-secret new approach to the United States' foreign policy, and he requested that these institutions produce a report for him to read on their findings. To cut a long story short, NSC-68 was the fruit of this labour. If you're still with me after that, and I hope you are, then you're either thinking that this makes a little bit of sense and you want to hear more, or you're shaking your head furiously and on the verge of switching me off as some kind of nut. Before you switch me off though, I want to drop a little bit of knowledge on you guys, which might make my ideas here seem a little bit more believable. You see, in 1978, the bar on several documents from the Korean War passed their top secret 25-year ban and they were released declassified to the public. These documents dealt in particular with State Department communications between the different departments and different embassies abroad, but they also delved into NSC 68 in more detail. The implications and revelations coming from these documents were not properly captured until the distinguished professor of history at George Washington University, a Mr. Richard C. Thornton, published them in a comprehensive revisionist account of the Korean War, in his book entitled Odd Man Out. Within this book, Thornton captures the stunning implications of this new evidence, even while it had been available for over 20 years by the time Thornton's book was published in 2000, but had yet to be properly digested. If you were worried then that my conclusions were based on nothing more than my own suppositions, then fear not, for Richard C. Thornton is on the case. Thornton has written detailed and highly recommended studies of American foreign policy in the past, including a Whopper multi-volume series on Henry Kissinger. He is no slouch, and no crackpot theorist either, much like I am not, as you'll hopefully agree. Much of my direction and basis for this series comes from his book, and even if you're unaware of where you stand on that conflict, I would recommend that you do get it, because... It is a highly readable and detailed account of the diplomatic meanderings of the Korean War, examined under the kind of microscope that no other historian to my knowledge has yet to employ when they approach the Korean War. So now you know my theories, you know what I believe and you know that I haven't pulled these ideas out of thin air. Hopefully you are now ready to join me in tracing the conflict from its origins in the post-war world to its development, eruption and course. All the while I will maintain... The conflict in Korea was the plaything of the great powers, as they sought to achieve their foreign policy goals at the expense, above all, of the Korean people. Just because we won't be focusing on the Korean people, doesn't mean that I don't believe they were an important part of the story. They were the background, lurking portion of the story, the part the media glossed over and which the domestic public forgot about or looked down upon. It'd be disingenuous of me to claim that I'm doing this series for the Korean people, because I'm not. However, having said that, I do hope that by doing this series, you guys will be able to understand the terrible circumstances which were forced upon the residents of that peninsula. This series has two broad goals then, to understand how and why the war broke out, and to explain how the different policy aims of the relevant actors influenced the course of the conflict. All the while, caught in the middle, like a child in a messy divorce, were the Korean people. It has to be said here, in the introduction episode, that I do not emphasise enough in the course of this series how devastating and terrible a tragedy that the Korean War represented to the Korean people, but one only has to investigate the current living conditions in North Korea, or to observe the tense standoff across the 38th parallel and its unsettling impact on world affairs, to appreciate that the Korean Peninsula remains steeped in tragedy, a tragedy which began for various reasons when the Korean War erupted. We are not quite finished unwrapping the introductory phases of my approach to this conflict yet, so if you would like to learn more about how these episodes will be structured, some exciting new things you can look out for and what kind of sources I made use of, among other bits of information and some cool notes on the music I'm going to use, then I would encourage you guys to check out the second introductory episode. I recognise that releasing a prologue and two introduction episodes isn't exactly the norm, even for my eclectic approach, but bear with me if you would be so kind. There is so much for us to discover and learn about in this conflict, guys, and I want to make sure that we begin this journey properly, so that we're all on the same page. With that in mind, I hope your curious bone has been tickled, whatever that means, and that you'll join me in the next introductory episode, where we lay out in more detail... we're all about in the korean war series and why you yes you right there should be excited to begin until then history friends my name is zach and you've been listening to our first introductory episode on the korean war thanks for listening and i'll hopefully unless i scared you away be seeing you all soon